Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. I'm in the dark. Someone hit the lights. There we go. Come into the light. My name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. We're in Isaiah 25 this morning. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. I'll point out some things you might want to underline or circle. I like to mark up my copy of God's Word so I can remember things. Um, Let's see. Let's start with the end in mind. Here are four possible takeaways from this morning. See if I can bait you into listening and paying attention with some of the the possible takeaways. Gaining a greater understanding of God's faithfulness. We're going to learn this morning that God is not simply faithful, but perfectly faithful perfectly faithful, executing, in fact, a plan from long ago to do wonderful things throughout time and space. We also could gain a, a feeling of comfort. Anybody? I won't, don't raise your hands, but in a room this size, many, many of us are needing comfort. A feeling of comfort in our earthly trials because of the hope, the certain hope we have in heaven and the experience that is ahead for us. The best days for God's people are always ahead of them. Always ahead of them. Thirdly, we could learn this morning to more accurately offer the invitation of the gospel. How do you present the gospel? When you present the gospel, is it simply fire insurance, the get-out-of-hell-free card? Or is there a greater reality to it, an eternal reality, a go-to-the-greatest-party-ever-hosted opportunity. We'll talk about that today. Celebrating God's sovereign work of redemption. God's sovereignty is his ruling over all things throughout time and space and moving history towards a teleos, towards an end, a particular end that brings him glory and brings his people's good. All right. Four possible takeaways. Let's jump in. Isaiah 25 verse 1. It's on the screen. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, not just mediocre faithfulness, perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things. Wonderful things. Things planned from long ago. Pause there for just a moment. The title of our sermon series is God is Faithful. Here Isaiah notes that he's perfectly faithful, that he's accomplished wonderful things through his faithfulness. Interestingly, he says those wonderful things were planned from long ago. God has always been at work in history, doing these, accomplishing these things, moving history towards these wonderful outcomes. This reminds me of the New Testament declaration made by the Apostle John in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. He says that Christ was, in fact, Jesus was slain from the creation of the world. God intended to provide Christ as a sacrifice on the cross from the foundation of the world. What does this mean? It means that God in his sovereignty, his control over all creation, planned to provide Christ as a sacrifice for our sin in his perfect faithfulness, his goodness to the created order. This reality can be hard for us to get our minds around. Particularly, it can be hard for us to get our minds around the fact that God is sovereign over all creation. He's moving history towards a particular end, and we are volitional. 
That means we are willful, not willful in a bad way, sometimes willful in a bad way, but by volitional means we, we have a will. We choose what we wear uh, to church this morning. We choose whether or not we come to church or go for a bike ride on an 85-degree day, right? We're volitional creatures. Well, how does the volition of humanity and the sovereignty of God intersect? How does it interrelate? How does his perfect faithfulness in my, in every bad sense of the word, willfulness interact, Right? So that can blow our minds a little bit, but it's also comforting. It's comforting to to know that God has painstakingly worked throughout time and space, throughout all history, to bring wonderful things out of chaos. In other words, God's not up in heaven wringing his hands over the fact that you're sinful, right? We have a shower that acts up right? I'm frankly wringing my hands. How much is this going to cost? When you go to turn the shower on, the whole house shakes, right? Good, you can relate to, right? So I'm wringing my hands, a plumber, you know, on the clock, $200 for the first quarter hour, right? (laughs) Whatever. So God's not like that. God's not up there thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to care for Kelly and all his sinfulness? Look what he did today. God is perfect in his faithfulness, executing his plan of wonderful things throughout time to send Christ to care for us, then the Holy Spirit to condescend at Pentecost and enliven, uh, bring to new life those who trust in Jesus. That, is, that plan is still unfolding today. God at work. All right, verse 2. Isaiah is going to detail some of the wonderful things in the, in the next few verses, the next eight verses, uh, that God has done in his perfect faithfulness, planned since long ago. Here are some of them. Verse 2, you have made the city a heap of rubble. Now, at first, that doesn't sound like a wonderful thing. Bear with me. You've made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. You've wiped it out. It'll never be rebuilt. Therefore, because of this, your work, this wonderful thing, therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You've been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. In other words, the cities of ruthless people have been humbled and those in need have been cared for. This is something that only God in his perfect faithfulness can do. A shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. We'll pause there for a second. What wonderful things does Isaiah have in mind when he says he's done these wonderful things planned out from long ago in his perfect faithfulness? And then he lists a couple of them, stilled the song of the ruthless. He's judged the ruthless nations destroying their cities, laying them to waste. If you were here last week, you may remember that there was a long list of nations. Here it is again on the screen. These nations under the judgment of God from chapters 13 to 23. 
And Isaiah just goes through nation after nation talking about how God has condemned them and is going to bring uh, hardship against them. In fact, in some cases, bringing them against one another as a means to judging both nations. And so he just goes through these nations, Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Cush, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Judah, Tyre, on and on. Virtually every nation in the Middle East, ancient, Near East, gets mentioned here as God is condemning them for their immorality. Uh, they're attacking his people. Uh, they're worshiping other gods. These are some of the reasons they're coming un under judgment. And when they come under judgment for attacking Judah, and note, Judah's on the least list as well. Judah are, are part of the chosen people, larger nation of Israel. They're on the list to be judged as well for their immorality. They're worshiping other gods. But when he judges these other nations, he, he's not playing favorites. In fact, judgment starts with the people of God just as revival should start first with the people of God. The people of God should be privy to their sinfulness first. We should be at the head of the line of repentance. But when he's judging these other nations, judgment's not the last word. In fact, it's not simply that he brought judgment. He also was a refuge for the poor and the needy in their distress. He was a shelter in the storm, Isaiah says. He provides shade from the heat of those who are coming against them. In short, God's fought for the oppressed, provided them for them in their suffering. God's not, he's not simply faithful to judge those who are sinful. He's also faithful to bring, give mercy to those who've been oppressed and sinned against. This is God's perfect faithfulness, meeting out judgment against sin and showing mercy towards sinners. God's able to do these things because judgment is never his last word. Did you know that? Judgment and destruction are never God's last word. Instead, God always intends the harsh words of judgment, like in chapters 13 to 23, as nation after nation after nation comes under his judgment. He means for those words to lead to realities of hope and redemption. After the silencing of ruthless people always comes the celebration of those who trust in his salvation. After the silencing of the ruthless nations, sinful peoples, comes the celebration of those who trust in his salvation. In other words, if we'll receive his rebuke, we can know his reward. Some of us hold at arm's length God's rebuke. We pretend that we're not under his judgment or that we're not sinners, we're not going to be uh, coming in contact or having to look at God's judgment. And when, as we resist that and refuse that, we, we never receive the invitation to know his reward, his care, his mercy. We'll continue reading here. And as I continue to read in verse 6, uh, there is a, a shift from what God's done He's judged the nations. He's laid waste the cities to what he's going to do, a future look. Um, remember in verse 3, if you're looking in your copy of the scripture, strong peoples will honor him. Cities of ruthless nations will revere him. This is a future reality to come. 
And that's encouraging. God's judgment, his work of judgment will result even in the repentance of ruthless people. Ruthless peoples will actually be rescued from their ruthlessness, their sinfulness, their willfulness. Isaiah says that one day, these ruthless peoples, they're going to revere God. They're going to honor God. The short of it is no one is beyond God's reach. In here this morning, you may, you may feel as though I've committed sin that puts me beyond God's reach. It's just not the case. There's a theology of the sufficiency of the cross. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all sin. No one is beyond the salvation that God provides. We see that here clearly in Isaiah. Even ruthless peoples will turn towards you. So as we read, begin in verse 6, there's a verb tense change, what he has done to what he will do. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty, and that, if you were here last week, is Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of heaven's armies, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, will, one day, future hope, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. It's the shroud as a metaphor for death. It's that gray cloud of death, the reality of our sin that hangs over all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, he'll swallow up death forever. He's going to do away with death. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from our faces. What made you cry last week? Whatever made you cry last week will one day be addressed by your creator and will be removed. He'll remove his people's disgrace. What is the shame you want no one to know about? Or if they know about it, you wish they didn't know. He's going to remove that. There's a future hope. He's going to deal with death, our shame, what causes us tears, This is a beautiful day ahead. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Is enjoying a great banquet your picture of heaven. When you share your faith with others and you say, come, follow Christ, trust in Christ, is the invitation you make when you invite people to follow Jesus an invitation to a great banquet? Does it include that reality? Is is a great banquet a part of the description of what lies ahead as you make the invitation for people to trust in Jesus? Life in this world can be difficult. Are our kids hearing from us about the party that is ahead for all those trusting in Jesus? Today is hard. Yesterday was hard. Tomorrow may be hard. But the best days for God's people are always in the future. Are our kids hearing That God is a party planner, and he's got this great day of celebration ahead for those who trust in Christ. When you imagine heaven, 
and you picture in your mind's eye what that'll be like, what do you picture? So many times when we read scripture, we look for in God's word what we're to do, understandably so, or what we're not to do. Behaviors were to avoid, behaviors were to embrace. I understand that. It's admirable to want to honor God with what we do or don't do. But it's most important when we read God's word to come away from our time of reading scripture with a better understanding of who God is and what he's doing. Does that make sense? Anytime we go to scripture, the first question we need to ask is, what does this passage teach us about God? The greatest insight gained from reading scripture is not about me or us. That's not the greatest insight gained about humanity and our responsibility, but rather about our creator, his character, his person, his purposes, his plans. And in this passage, we learn that God is planning a party. Picture in your mind's eye the largest, most elaborate dinner party you've ever attended and multiply it by a gazillion. That's what God's up to. Isaiah says, a feast of rich food. Is that how you describe the invitation of the gospel? A banquet of aged wine, the finest wines, the best meats. Is that how you imagine heaven? A place of abundance? I'm afraid that most of us picture heaven as a quiet place. Harp music is playing in the background, something akin to a library. In fact, many, many, many many people worry that they're going to be eternally bored in heaven. Good, you're tracking with me. As As if heaven's a place where we have all this time on ourselves and are not quite sure what to do, and we're twiddling our thumbs and there's this music playing in the background and we're floating around on clouds. Folks, that's not at all what's described in Scripture. Isaiah gives a much different picture. Now, is a party all that's going on in heaven? Absolutely not. There will also be meaningful work. Our greatest contributions will be made in heaven. Did you know that? Hopefully you have a really meaningful job. You love to go to the job. You help people in your job. Um, You provide for your family in, in your job. Maybe your job is, you can't imagine contributing more. The fact is that the reward for faithfulness in this life is the opportunity for more faithfulness in the next life. When we're with Christ in his presence, when the kingdom has come, the citizens will be fully engaged. You'll make your greatest contributions in eternity. You'll be anything but bored. And you'll be, you'll be engaged with this place of, uh, by this place of superabundance. Listen to John's description of heaven in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. This passage will be familiar to many of you. And um, he's just describing what he sees as he sees the new city, the new heavens and the new earth. Then I heard again what sounded like a shout of a huge crowd. It's not harp music in silence. It's no library. A shout 
of a huge crowd saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. It's a ruckus place of great celebration. Let us be glad and rejoice and honor him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. And the angel said, write this down, happy. Happy are those invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. When you extend the invitation for someone to come and follow Christ and you're explaining the gospel, is it this happy invitation? Hey, if you want to be, have the deepest satisfaction, know the most fulfillment, have the experience of greatest contribution, significance, and meaning, begin to follow Jesus in your, this life because that's what the next life has for us. Happy are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast that God is planning is the same great banquet that Isaiah is describing in today's passage, chapter 25. We can assume that the Apostle John was keenly aware of, of the great banquet in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 55, come, which Jeff opened this morning with, and we read together of this feast of honey and milk and this satisfying experience. Here, John is describing it at the end of time. And it's a feast, a banquet meant to celebrate Christ and what he's done. Plans long ago, perfect faithfulness worked out, and it's time to celebrate God and what he's done in redemptive history. Jesus is the one who sacrificed, was sacrificed as a lamb, led to slaughter on the cross. He will come at the end of time to collect his bride for this feast, right? So John's mixing metaphors here. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. There aren't many brides, multiple brides. There is a collective bride, the peoples that are being saved through faith in Christ. Happy are those that are invited to this. Is this is this what you picture, or does this description surprise you? If you've never thought of heaven as a place of great celebration, feasting, rejoicing, rest assured, it is the polar opposite of what will be experienced by all those who remain separated from God by their sin. I'm afraid that the church has historically spent a great deal of time describing hell and not near enough time helping us imagine heaven. Remember, are you familiar with the, uh, I don't know, the, the phrase or the saying that says you can catch a lot more flies with honey than vinegar? What if one of Satan's schemes is enticing us to fixate on the ugliness of hell rather than on the beauty of heaven. I wonder what ungodliness in our lives over the last week, right? The ungodliness of the last week, the sinful habits that we want to be done with may be better remedied by more thoroughly exercising our imagination of heaven. Rather than trying to scare the hell out of each other, perhaps we'd be better served by helping people imagine heaven.
in the deeply satisfying experience that will be there. This week, I would encourage us all, when we're alone with God, spend some time with your eyes closed doing your best to imagine heaven. Is hell a real place? Absolutely. Do not remain in your sin, which means, which means trust in Christ's provision for your sin and turn your attention to heaven. Right? Fix your eyes on Christ because heaven is your home. That's where we'll be one day. So close your eyes at some point this week and imagine the beauty of heaven. I want to read for, for you a passage that will be familiar to many, again from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as history is tied up and all the loose ends are addressed and death is done away with and tears are done away with and suffering is done away with. Look at what John saw. In fact, you could close your eyes if you wanted. Do your best to imagine what I'm about to read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It's the water that brings life, everlasting life. John says it's as clear as crystal. It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, their throne. It flows down the middle of the great street of the city. This river flows down the middle of Main Street, New Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Right? Spring has finally come. It's time to plant your gardens. Fruit will come soon, this summer, late fall. Right? It's seasonal. No, these trees bear fruit every season. It's this picture of abundance, water that brings life straight from the throne of God. It, the water nurtures these trees. They hang over this crystalline clear river of life, dropping fruit for the people of God. It's in season every month of the year. We don't live in a, in a reality of abundance. Our reality is one of scarcity in which we go to work and we labor and we, how, we wring our hands, how are we going to pay our bills and we need to work harder, maybe we need a part-time job on top of the full-time job. That's the reality of this world. Look at the reality of heaven. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Got up this morning, opened my browser, thumbed through some news stories, can't make this stuff up, right? There is apparently a summit in which Russian delegates met with Ukrainian delegates. The highlight of the summit is a Russian delegate, he looked like he was probably 70, making his way across the room, grabbing the Ukrainian flag and throwing it to the ground. The Ukrainian delegate, who was holding the flag in his hands, jumps on the Russian delegate. So we've got one old man jumping on another old man in what was supposed to be, I assume, an, an effort to bring this war to an end. The leaves of the trees in the presence of God are for the healing of the nations. And that's collective healing. It's healing for me, my family, individual healing. No longer will there be any curse. 
whatever you suffer with, the wounds you carry. The throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city. The presence of God will be among us, and his servants will serve him. Just kind of uh, a passing remark there. You're not going to be bored in heaven. You're going to serve. You're going to be actively engaging your gifts, your talents, your abilities, fully contributing. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. There'll be no need of light of lamp or light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light, and they will actively reign forever and ever with our Creator. You'll be, in, you'll be engaged, not bored. Heaven's a place of abundance and healing and security. It's a place of contribution. Dallas Willard, a, a philosopher, writer, evangelical, he's passed away, whose books have been a part of the discipleship effort in my life or God's care of me. Um, Willard said, God is the most joyous being in the universe. Here's one of his quotes. It's from The Divine Conspiracy, uh, a book that I'd recommend you read if you're looking for. It's not easy to make your way through. He was a philosophy professor, uh, but it's deep, deep waters. Central to the understanding and proclamation of the Christian gospel today, central to accurately presenting the gospel to our kids and our our spouses and our family and friends, as it was in Jesus' day, is a revisioning of what God's own life is like. Do you picture God having a life? (laughs) And how the physical cosmos fits into it. We should, to begin, think that God leads a very interesting life. (laughs) Dosecki's commercial aside. The most interesting being in the universe. Is this how you vision your creator? And that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, God is the most joyous being in the universe. We see this reality throughout the pages of Scripture, this invitation to a party, to enter into his joy, to be a part of what he's doing. He reminds his people at least three times a year in the Old Testament to have festivals that were aimed at celebrating his provision and protection. For example, the Passover feast. It's a feast. It was a feast that lasted for many days, a week, right? The communion, the the institution of communion by Jesus at the Last Supper was a Passover meal, a Passover feast, where they shared in food together. And for many days, they celebrated God's provision, his abundance, the Feast of Weeks, which was a harvest celebration that came 50 days after the first fruits. Pentecost was during the Feast of Weeks. It's not coincidental. It's in God's perfect faithfulness, worked out over time, that there was a Passover feast, communion, the sacrifice of the lamb. Uh, 50 days later, right, there's Pentecost. The first fruits are ingathered. And the, the Spirit of God condescends during the Feast of Weeks. And fruit is born. I probably lost some of you 
Suffice to say, this, there's the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, which is the celebration of God's provision for his people during the 40 years in the wilderness. If you're in a desert season this morning, there was a feast meant to remind you of God's provision even in the desert. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, in which the Israelites would physically, they still do today, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you still build a tabernacle and you go live in it for a week, which is a tent. I mean, it's... It's literally these days often just a tent that they unfold in their living room and they'll live in the tent for a week to remember God's provision in the desert wanderings of his people. Each of these feasts was a God-ordained party. Feasting, celebrating is a natural overflow of the person of our God. And those who are trusting in Christ have a party ahead. Do you know that feeling when you have a party on the calendar? You got something to look for. Some of you are smiling. That's fun. So if you have a, a party to look forward, maybe in the next week or the next month, it's kind of fun to think about, hey, we're getting together. We're going to have a party. It can actually, right, give you a little lift in your step. Our oldest just got engaged. Looks like it'll be in December, the wedding. There's a party to look forward to. That's kind of fun. We'll spend the next few months planning it. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a party on your calendar. It's a party of unparalleled experience. When all of your issues, your hurts, your sinful habits, your sinful hangups will be done away with. And you'll enter into this party. And in that party, there'll be no suffering or tears or death. What a party! And you'll be in your Creator's presence. And at the party will be people you'll be surprised are at the party. In fact, the, the writer Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, goes out of his way by God's providence to note that all peoples, all people's group, all people groups will be there. He says. Even Egyptians will be there. Even Assyrians. Now, in Isaiah's day, to say that Egyptians and Syrians will be there would be like saying our worst enemies, whoever that is. The most unimagined people will be there. On the screen is Isaiah chapter 19. Look what God is going to do for Egypt and Assyria. People by, from Israelite perspective are the farthest away from God's saving work. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague, judgment. He will strike them and heal them. Judgment's never the last word in God's work. There's always hope in healing. They will turn to the Lord. He'll respond to their pleas and heal them. They're going to turn from sin, Egyptians, and turn towards him in pleading for his care, and he's going to heal them. He's going to answer their prayers. Doggone it, that's, that's beautiful. That's encouraging. Imagine the person in your mind furthest from God's saving work. God can reach them. In that day, Israel will be the third, not the first, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, 
the Lord who governs the armies of heaven will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, Israel, my inheritance. God's inviting all the peoples of the nations. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you have a great party to look forward to. Whatever you wrestled with last week, whatever shame, disgrace, plague you're enduring, it'll one day get addressed. There's a party on the calendar for you. God will care for you. He'll care for you, you know, uh, between here and there as well. He never leaves us or forsake us. But you have a great day ahead. A party is on your calendar. If you're not trusting in Jesus, don't miss the party. Don't miss the party. Let me make the invitation really clear. God wants you there at the end of time, tasting the best wines, the best meats, and singing his praise. Don't miss it. Don't remain in your sin, which means, make sure you understand what this means. When I say don't remain in your sin, I'm not saying fix your life. That's not what it means to remain in our sins. The invitation is to depend on another man who died in your place, suffering in your place on the cross. Trust in his, his perfect righteousness. He was uh, perfect morally, and then he died on the cross, a death he didn't deserve, so that we could be free, so that we could be included. He paid the price of our judgment. So when I say don't remain in your sins, I'm not saying Make sure you fix yourself, put those sins aside, yes, but trust in Christ and fix your hope on heaven. You can do that right where you're seated, just say, God, I accept your invitation to heaven. I trust in Jesus. I want to be a part of the bride, right? It's the bride. The groom's going to come for at the end of time. It's a wedding feast that we're headed towards, this great banquet. Just say, I want to be, I accept the invitation. I want to go to the wedding. I want to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I want to be a part of the bride. And you'll be included. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We ask that we'd present it accurately in the days ahead. That we would talk about the great banquet. That we'd celebrate your perfect faithfulness. The sovereign, perfect, wonderful things you're doing in history, in time and space. We need your healing for nations, and we look forward to it. In Jesus' name. Let's stand. We'll close singing song together.